Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at RestoreAustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. Good morning, Restore. As you already heard from the other Zach, my name is Zach. Uh, and I'm really happy to be here with you. It's been three years now uh, since I last preached for you guys. Um, and it's been four months since the last time I preached on a Sunday morning. Um, like Zach mentioned, I used to be the uh, lead pastor at a church in Houston. Um, it's actually a church I founded and spent the last like nine and a half years um, building. And uh, our church got to be in Denver this week, our staff, which doesn't include me anymore, um, and our first uh, daughter church, which is also named Restore Houston, um, in honor of you guys here. I uh, got to be there. I think you all got to meet Nicole a few weeks ago. Um, anyway, it is such a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Um, so... <clears throat> I handed off my church this summer, um, sort of to start a tech company, um, but really uh, uh, sort of in need of some just like rest and wholeness and healing for myself. And it's been a really freeing few months. Um, A huge part of that is because of the extra space that I have had to prioritize my home life. Um, My wife and I have always both worked particularly demanding jobs. Um, And just like many of you, we have found the past few years uh, disorienting. Um, We've lost some friends. We've lost some family, some literally, some figuratively. And I find myself more and more longing for simple joys. Now, my whole adult life, I've had an unusual number and quality of friendships, Um, I've had close, deep friendships my entire life, and I'm enormously grateful for that. I plan on stopping none of those. Yet, especially over the past few years, I've found it the hardest uh, and particularly easiest, I suppose, to be distracted and distant from the two people that I actually live with. Right? Sometimes it's easy for me to prioritize friendship and deep relationships. And sometimes at home, it's like, uh, I love you. And also, I got a ton of work to do. Um, so what, what I've realized is what I really want out of life isn't a billion dollars. Um, it's not a successful preaching career. It's not a Fields Medal for being the world's best outstanding mathematician. Um, I've, I've done some brainstorming all, on all of these, although as of last week, it's officially too late for me to win the Fields Medal because you've got to be uh, less than 40. Um, what, what I really want more than any of these things is a beautiful home life. I, I want a home life that's filled with connection, people and conversation, wine and coffee and food, shared blankets, bath times, late nights, drives around the city just to waste time, walks around the neighborhood just to enjoy the weather and my little boy on my shoulders, joy, safety, play, so much affection. Very specifically for me, I have this four-year-old little boy um, named Asher, and I'm just saying I wouldn't want to be a sibling. Um, He's pretty, he's funny, he's smart, um, too smart for his own good. Um, And then I have a wife, Kim. We've been married for 17 years. 
Uh, she's funny and smart and all that too, but she has receipts, right? She's got a graduate degree. She's made a great career um, at the world's best cancer hospital. She's got more direct reports than anyone on earth on uh, than anyone on earth should have. Uh, she's as intense as I am, um, but she doesn't have my all too often off-putting tone. Um, she's thoughtful as a friend. She's humble. She's genuinely concerned about others, and she's brave. I, I really think these two, my wife and my little boy, are the absolute best. And so when I dream about my future in my life, I dream about life with them. I want to dote on them and revel in them and simply enjoy them as much, as long, as often as I can. Now, for you, it probably looks a little bit different. It's not Asher and it's not Kim and maybe it's not a spouse or a child at all, but I imagine that you dream of some sort of simple, connected, joy-filled life too, don't you? Now, I, I guess this is the case for you, like, I'd probably put money on it, but not much money. I'm broke and unemployed after all. Um, <clears throat> but, but I think this is the case because I think this is the case for, for most of us. But I'm 100% sure that this is the case for God. I'm 100% sure that God dreams of a beautiful home life with you. Now, as I understand it, you guys here at Restore have been building this uh, year-long focus on wholeness and healing. In the midst of all the darkness and craziness and burnout and all the rest that the last few years has brought, you're focusing on wholeness and healing. And you've done a six-week message series on the identity of God um, uh, and centered on the fact that God is love. And now we are apparently in week two of a series on the identity of us as humans, centered on the fact that we are God's beloved. So over the next few weeks, you're going to explore a variety of concrete ways that this comes to pass. But this week to me, um, I guess it's why it's my week, but this week to me seems to be the most fundamental and natural implication that flows from the statement that God is love and we are God's Beloved. Now, when we first hear and understand this statement, we are God, uh, God is love and we are God's beloved, it is profound. But to actually experience the healing and wholeness that we are all hoping for this year, we need to go beyond mere understanding. Um, we all put up with like a really ridiculous analogy for just a minute. Like here, here's a story I want to build completely made up. I, I know it's ridiculous, but bear with me because it's important for my point. Imagine this. There's this dude, Dave. Um, he's always heard about the magnificence of the Eiffel Tower. He's heard what Paris looks like when you're at the top of the Eiffel Tower. He's heard how the tower sparkles over the river at night. He's heard how it's so great that it compels 7 million visitors every year, despite the fact that when you're there, you have to compete with 6.999 million other visitors just to enjoy its beauty. Now, the Eiffel Tower was Dave's dad's favorite place. It's where Dave's dad proposed to Dave's mom. So Dave has heard about the Eiffel Tower endlessly from the time that he was a wee lad. But somehow, Dave has never visited the Eiffel Tower. He's from a little, uh, tiny little town, Muleshoe, Texas, and he's never been there. So he's been working and saving and building up. And finally this year, for his birthday, he made it to Paris. 
He had a fantastic time. And when he returned, he took his friends out to dinner and they asked him, Dave, tell us, how was Paris? Was the Eiffel Tower everything that you had been dying to see since as long as any of us have known you? So Dave pulls out his phone, he hands it around the table, and he starts telling the story of his time in Paris. Everyone else is, is ooing and aahing over his pictures while he narrates his trip. He's saying, Eiffel Tower this, Eiffel Tower that. You just can't understand until you've been there. You absolutely have to go to the Eiffel Tower. It's even better than the stories. It's better than you have imagined. But as they listen to Dave, and as they scroll through the photos, his friends notice something exceedingly strange. Dave apparently has no pictures at the Eiffel Tower. He's got pictures of napkins with drawings of the Eiffel Tower. He's got pictures of paintings of the Eiffel Tower. He's got pictures of plastic Eiffel Tower toys. He's got pictures of a sign that says, this way to the Eiffel Tower. He's even got a picture of a picture of the Eiffel Tower, but he has no actual pictures of him being at the Eiffel Tower. So he's in the middle of narrating and his friends eventually interrupt him and say, uh, Dave, where is the Eiffel Tower? You keep telling us about it and how much you love it. You've been talking about it for years. And really, you didn't even take a picture? Well, it turns out it's even worse than that. Dave never even made it to the Eiffel Tower. Now it's kind of far from his hotel. He had lots of other stuff going on. He was meeting up with other people. And after all, he already had the trinkets and the pictures and the napkins and all the other stuff. And that was pretty good. So he settled for that. And his friends like lost their minds at the absurdity of this, right? Like, wouldn't we all do the same thing if we are Dave's friends? Because we all realize that settling for the idea of a thing or a fancy statement about the thing, or a well-crafted annual focus on the thing, someone else's depiction of the thing. None of these are the thing itself. In the exact same way, the idea of God's love, in the idea of us being God's beloved, these are factual and fantastic ideas. And yet, you know what's far better than these as ideas? The reality underneath these ideas, the reality of God's love and us being God's beloved, it comes to a head, it comes to an active reality in this, that God dreams of a beautiful home life with you. Actually, we can say even more than that. God is actively reconfiguring his own life to build a beautiful home life with you. God's love isn't just a symbol. It's not a hypothetical. It's not a rallying cry. It's real, active, powerful, inviting us into permanent communion with Father and Son and spirit. And this is beginning here and now through a reality known as union with Christ. Now, 
Um, we, could, we could end here, and my basic case is made, but what I want to do really quickly is show you way too much of what Jesus says, because I don't want you to miss that this isn't my well-wishing, this isn't some high-minded ideal of who God might be, this is exactly what Jesus says over and over and over in ways that you might have missed. Um, I want you to look at John 12 with me. Um, here's what it says, starting in verse 1. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, home of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Lazarus and his sisters hosted a dinner for him. Martha served. Lazarus was among those who joined him at the table. Then Mary took an extraordinary amount, almost three quarters of a pound of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She anointed Jesus' feet with it, then wiped his feet dry with her hair. The house was filled with the aroma of their perfume. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, complained, this perfume was worth a year's wages. Why wasn't it sold? Why wasn't the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He carried the money bag and, was, and would take what was in it. Okay, so pause here with me for just a second. Here in John chapter 12, um, we already know a couple of things about Mary, right? He's told us Mary, Martha, Martha Lazarus, um, but he's kind of jumped in and he's already told us a whole lot in John chapter 11, which is a story of Lazarus dying and being resurrected by Jesus. But the story of Lazarus dying and being resurrected by Jesus actually starts with the statement that Jesus loved Mary and her sister Martha and their brother, and their brother Lazarus. So before anything else in this story, all of it is predicated on this fact that Jesus loved them and Jesus loved her. Jesus loved Mary. So Lazarus got sick and died, um, and uh, Jesus wasn't there to save him. So when Jesus does show up several days later to visit the grieving family, Martha runs out to him, but Mary stays at home. After Martha talks to Jesus, he tells her he's the resurrection and the life. She goes back to Mary and says, Jesus is here and he is specifically calling for you. So Mary goes out to see him and in her overwhelming pain, she falls down and weeps and pretty directly confronts Jesus and says, you should have been here. My brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus is so moved by her grief that they go out to the tomb together and Jesus weeps too. You know the, the story and the verse that Jesus wept. We know that's because of Lazarus, but actually it's because Jesus so loved Mary and is so moved by the grief of Mary and being confronted by Mary. You should have been here. You could have saved him that Jesus weeps too. Jesus loved Mary and of course also Martha and Lazarus. And so Jesus resurrects her beloved brother, Lazarus. So the story that we've just read here in John chapter 12 um, happens a little bit later when they're all celebrating. They've gathered in a house. We're not sure whose house it is. They're at a feast. Lazarus, Lazarus, the living, breathing, walking miracle is there. Martha is serving, which is apparently her thing, making sure everything is going great. And Mary decides to pull an, an appropriately extravagant act of worship for the lover of her soul who is there in the house with her that night. So we know that Jesus, from the start, has loved Mary. 
So, um, it wouldn't have been weird if Jesus, having loved Mary, it wouldn't have been weird if Mary reciprocated that love to some degree. But then, for him to comfort them, for him to come to them, for him to weep with them, for him to show up and directly call for her, come to me. The Lord is here. He's calling directly for you in the strongest throes of your grief. And then he bears with her in the confrontation. He resurrects her beloved brother. Like, it wouldn't have been weird for Mary to love him in the first place. She's going to love him and love him and love him and love him and love him even more. And then they're all here celebrating. And I, for one, cannot imagine how much in this moment, how exuberantly Mary loves Jesus. So, by the way, just pause for one second. Um, The biblical authors intend for us to do exactly what I'm hoping that we're doing already kind of implicitly in this moment. Like starting to insert ourselves in the story. Starting to say, wait, Jesus loved Mary. Jesus loved loves me. Jesus came to Mary and called to her. Jesus has come directly to us and is calling to us even in this moment. Wait, Jesus joined her in her grief. Jesus joins us in our grief. Wait, Jesus was okay with her angry, frustrated, directly confrontational, please. And apparently he's okay with our angry, confrontational, frustrated, please. Jesus promised to Martha, I will resurrect you and everyone else that you love. And then he resurrects their beloved sibling. And he promises to do the exact same for every one of us. Like our job in this story is to insert ourselves into this story. So with all this love, with all the love that starts off, with all the love that builds up, Mary apparently loves Jesus so much that in this moment she decides to drop, I don't know, 30 grand unannounced at a dinner party to celebrate him in the middle of all of these friends. She takes this huge bottle of pure, uh, beautifully pungent, thick, oily, perfumey stuff and rubs it all over Jesus. Now, the Gospel of Mark tells us that he, she poured it on his head. Here in the Gospel of John, we see her rub it on his feet and then rub his feet with her hair. She undoes her hair and she lovingly wipes his feet dry. There's all kinds of beautiful symbolism that we could go into this morning. We could talk about the Old Testament um, symbols of anointing and how you became king, um, what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, the anointed one. We could talk about this subversive act of a woman being the one to anoint the anointed one. But the point that I want you to see right now is actually much simpler than all that contextual stuff. It's just all of this stuff that we've been building towards in the lead up. Can you imagine, can you feel, can you imaginatively hear this story of how shamelessly Mary pours out her love for, G- for, for Jesus, and then can you feel together with her, not lose sight of her in the midst of all of the arguments that have come about uh, money here in just a second, can you feel with her the shock of doing this shameless, vulnerable, exuberant, drop 30 grand in an instant act and then to be called out by Judas, freaking Judas of all people, who says, haven't you listened to anything Jesus has said? 
We are the kind of people that take Jesus' words about the poor so seriously. Are you just going to waste all of this? She gets called out, and she probably doesn't regret her love in that moment. She probably doesn't second-guess her, 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 her love and her feelings in that moment, but she probably second-guesses her actions, and she probably second-guesses how over-the-top it is. Like, literally, in, in our society, who spends 30 grand on an act of love? Like, like nobody. The, the only act of love that you might drop 30 grand for a dinner party on, and only if you're certain class and privilege and expectations, is a wedding. And she's doing this in a single dinner party. And then you have to imagine that as she's called out, she's got to be thinking, oh no, I have completely misread this situation. I've gone over the top and yeah, Jesus loves me, but it's not like we're getting married after all. But now the perfume is gone. Apparently the bottle is broken. What have I done? What is Jesus going to say out of, after one of his 12 closest friends has just called me out in this moment? And then Jesus says here, verse seven, leave her alone. This perfume was to be used in preparation for my burial. This is how she used it. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So Jesus said, leave her alone. Now, I know it's easy for us to miss this because of the argument about the money and like, wait, are we supposed to like give to the poor? Or are we supposed to just like spend all of our money celebrating and worshiping Jesus? And, and I know we can get distracted in like really important conversations, but don't forget Mary here. She spent this wedding kind of money in her love for Jesus and she begins to wonder if it's been wasteful to over the top. And then Jesus pipes up and says, bite your tongue, shut it, Judas. This was just right. Mary's love was over the top and apparently Jesus matches it. Mary's love was extravagant and Jesus matches it. Now, I don't know that Mary was processing all of this exactly at the time. And I definitely don't know if she was processing all that was going to happen. But y'all realize now, knowing the rest of the story, that Jesus' love doesn't just match hers. It one-ups her and significantly so, right? She pours out this precious perfume in love for her or in love for him. And Jesus is about to pour out the precious lifeblood of God in love for her. Her extravagance is fit for a wedding, which is when two enter and then they leave as one flesh. And his extravagance was fit for something unthinkably better that still feels weird to say. Where originally there are two and they become not one flesh, but they share one spirit. Now, we could end again here with these nice metaphors, kind of weakly implying how Jesus has one-upped Mary's love and desire, and therefore he one-ups and goes far beyond our love and desire, no matter how extravagant it is. But I'd rather turn a couple chapters later and show you um, one more big thing that Jesus says himself. In John 17, um, he's praying this thing that we know is the high priestly prayer. Now, this is one of the last times that Jesus is gathered with his best friends, and he is like affectionately and openly declaring his deepest desires in the presence of their God together, and he says this. 
I pray that they will be one, Father. This is John 17, 21. I pray that they will be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. I pray that they also will be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me so that they can be one just as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they will be made perfectly one. Then the world will know that you sent me and that you have loved them just as you loved me. Father, I want those you gave with me to be with me where I am. Then they can see my glory, which you gave me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, even the world... Uh, even though even the world didn't know you, but I have known you, and these believers know that you sent me. Now, I have made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that your love for me will be in them and I myself will be in them. So, like I said, this is, this is the last scene that Jesus has with his disciples before he's betrayed um, in the next chapter here in John. Um, this is known as the high priestly prayer, and it is one of my favorites specifically because of the articulated, open desire and affection that Jesus has, and the simply stated, though easily overlooked, explanation of exactly what Jesus wants with you and for you. What does Jesus say here that he desires, that he longs for, that he begs God for on one of his last nights? Let me recap. Father, I want them to have the relationship with us that you have with me. You are in me and I am in you, so I want to be in them so that they will be in me. I want them to be with me forever. I want them to, be tru to truly and fully know us. I want the same love that you have for me to take up residence within them just like I myself will take up residence within them. In fact, this is a whole lot like how Jesus explains what it means for us to come to have the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, this is the last little snippet I'm going to actually read for you this morning. So Jesus has just said in John chapter 14 that the Spirit will come to us, that he will send the Spirit to us. He says that he himself will come to us in this Spirit. He says that we will in fact see him because of this Spirit. And then in verse 19, he says, soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live too. You see that? What happens to Jesus happens to us, which is a point that I'm going to circle back to here in a, here in a second. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. The longing of God for you is to know you and be with you and to be permanently bonded to you forever and ever and ever, to be united to you. This is the reality that we call union with Christ, and it fills the whole rest of your New Testament. It's what I mean when I descriptively say that God is actively reconfiguring his life to create a beautiful home life 
with you. This is the Eiffel Tower that we must not miss. God's love is not merely an abstraction. It is a here and now reality that has begun because of union with Christ. Now, let me quickly recap um, for the sake of clarity. This exuberant love of Mary, it was warmly, enthusiastically, openly received and even matched by Jesus. That same exuberant love is what Jesus offers to us, who in his own words says he wants to be one spirit with us forever and ever. Right, it seemed like a little bit of a stretch earlier when I invited us to insert ourselves into the story, but now here in the very own words of Jesus, He's calling for you. He will stick with you through your rage and grief and doubt. He will weep with you. He's moved by the brokenness of the world and also by your own tears. Jesus will one day resurrect all of your beloved siblings and he thinks it's entirely appropriate to spend a life's worth of riches celebrating his love for you. In fact, one of Jesus' deepest desires his eternal intimacy with you, what we call communion, what we call fellowship, what we call love. This same kind of world-creating, unending, unconquerable love that Jesus has for his own Father, this is the love that Jesus wants to live within you forever, even as he makes himself one with you. You in him, him in you forever. You weep and he weeps. You suffer and he suffers. He lives and therefore you live. He conquers and therefore you conquer. Bound together forever, this is union with Christ. Now, when Zach asked if I would be willing to teach about this idea, um, I jumped and said yes, and then a few days later regretted it. Um, the, the, the problem is not you guys. Um, the problem is that this concept is everywhere, particularly in your New Testament. And I felt like I was going to take this long to kind of get to this point, And then I'm going to be like, okay, let me tell you the other 200 places in the New Testament to look. Um, and that seems like an overstatement, and literally it's not. Um, in, in Paul alone in the New Testament, he uses the phrase in Christ, in him, in the Lord, or its equivalent, uh, about 169 times. In the very opening verses of 1 John, John, the beloved friend of Jesus, explains that his um, existence and reality is one of having fellowship and communion with the Father and the Son and his expressed desire to share that communion with everyone else. The opening of 2 Peter declares mind-blowingly that we are now partakers of the divine nature. Paul goes so far as to say in one place that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. And so my problem in accepting the sermon is I don't know how to adequately cover this concept of union in the New Testament other than saying it's everywhere. So I, I've settled on closing with this. 
I wanted to show you that this is Jesus's deep, affectionate, like mind-blowing desire with, with Mary. I wanted to show you his words where he says, no, this wasn't a one-off. This is what I long for with every single one of you. And then I wanted to give you three b- uh, brief summary bullet points that you might chew on later. Because of union, number one, we are being made participants in divine communion forever. This is mostly what I've hit today. I I would go so far as to say that participating in divine communion is what we were made for. It's where the world has always been headed, and therefore it is an absolute fundamental necessity for us to experience healing and wholeness that we so deeply long for and need as humans. Um, The other thing that I would say about this, we are being made participants in divine communion forever, and that is beginning now. This can and should drive your expectations and experienced life of prayer. It drives my own and it sets oh so high expectations. To be honest, most of my time, my prayer life is far below these expectations, but I don't want to give up. I don't want to settle in my cynicism, in my doubt, in my intellectualism. I do not want to settle for anything less than actual lived divine communion. Number two, um, because of union, what happens to Jesus happens to us and vice versa. This is at the heart of those goofy 90s bracelets that briefly had a resurgence a couple years ago, the what would Jesus do? This idea of imitating Christ is powerful. Um, it's, it's partially how the incarnation works, so to speak. Um, it's why Jesus says, hey, what you do to the outcasts of society, you've done to me. All of this is wrapped up in this idea of union with Christ because what happens to Jesus happens to us And what happens to us happens to Jesus. And I will tell you that I find this to be a particularly helpful thing for me to lean into when I'm suffering, when I'm hurting, when I'm doubting, when I'm waiting, because this is happening to Jesus in me in this moment too. I may not be fully aware of that fact, but I'm confident that Jesus is not indifferent to this. And number three, union with Christ is the wildest idea because now you clearly know how none of this depends on anything that you do or don't do. There's, there's no pop quiz at the end of all things. It's like, do you hold every piece of the best theology with sufficient clarity and conviction? If so, you're admitted. In fact, there's nothing for you to do. You can walk out of here today You can basically ignore this concept of union with Christ for the rest of your life and you'll still probably somehow end up okay. And as crazy as that is to say, God, if that does not in and of itself spark my soul to some bit of worshipful divine Communion. I find it magnificent that we're actually going to be okay. This is a captivating hope and a hug for my soul, and I hope it is for you too. This concept, that this thing that I long to build, this beautiful home life that I long to build with my wife and my son, the fact that this is what God is actively rearranging his life 
and this entire cosmos to build with you and with me is the absolute best news. Let's pray. Father, I want to know this. I want to experience this. I want to celebrate this. Would you fill us with your love? Would you fill us with yourself? Would you give us courage to try this, to ask for this, to expect this? Jesus, would you make us one with yourself forever and ever in resurrection, in glory, in transformation, in in healedness, but also even now in hope, in pain, in singing and longing and everything else that pertains to our humanity in this moment. We need you. Be with us. Amen.